You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. After Anita Hill testified, he was totally shocked, and he came to my office, and just the two of us were talking, and he said, uh, you know what this is, Jack? This is a lynching. This is a high-tech lynching. Former U.S. Senator John Danforth. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has come under intense scrutiny the last couple of years, and perhaps no member of the high court has been in a harsher spotlight than Clarence Thomas. But Thomas is no stranger to controversy and criticism. The political opposition began virtually as soon as he was nominated to the high court in 1991 by President George H.W. Bush to succeed the retiring Thurgood Marshall. That opposition reached a crescendo when a former colleague of Thomas's, a woman named Anita Hill, came forward to testify about allegations of sexual harassment by Thomas. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every single allegation against me today that suggested in any way that I had conversations of a sexual nature or about pornographic material with Anita Hill. It was about this time that Thomas coined the phrase high-tech lynching to describe the way he felt about his experience. Helping shepherd the Thomas nomination through the U.S. Senate was Missouri Republican John Danforth, a friend and former colleague and even mentor of Clarence Thomas, who was eager to see Thomas confirmed to the high court. Thomas did, of course, ultimately win confirmation to the high court. And in 1994, Danforth wrote a book describing the Clarence Thomas confirmation episode. He called the book Resurrection. And that's when I had the chance to meet the senator. So here now from 1994, Senator John Danforth. It was the most dramatic um, event that I ever lived through. I thought that it was a terrible injustice. I thought that it was um, the worst case of um, the destruction of a human being I had ever seen. And I wanted to relate it in as much detail as I possibly could with the hope that uh, in doing so, the, the public would demand something better from government and from the interest groups and everybody else who was involved in it. It, it struck me, as it will strike other readers, that unlike many combatants in the Clarence Thomas hearing, uh, Anita Hill, uh, who were in this only because of a nominee whom they had just met that month, here's a man that you've known for 17 years. That's right. I first hired Clarence Thomas when he was a law student, third-year law student, uh, at Yale Law School. He came to work for me in Jefferson City when I was state attorney general of Missouri. And then um, after I reached the Senate, he came to work for me again. So I've known Clarence Thomas for a long time. I uh, talk to him a lot still. And uh, I think that he is uh, a very good human being. And when you see somebody who is close to you, who you like and, and have a high regard for, brought down, it's particularly painful. 
But you knew, as he knew, that it was not going to be at all an easy time of it during the confirmation hearings. We did. We knew that it was going to be hard. Clarence especially thought that it was going to be hard. He um, said that throughout the whole process, it was as though he was expecting to be shot at at any moment. But we never, ever expected anything like the Anita Hill charge. It was not in his mind. It was not on my mind. It was um, way beyond anything that we ever thought would happen. He seemed to almost take it physically. He did take it physically. It was uh, it was a, a physical reaction and an emotional reaction. Um, he couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. Um, he was reduced to tears, sobbing tears. Uh, to see him was to see a person who was obviously a human wreck. His eyes were red. He was constantly twitching. He was constantly putting his head in his hands. And um, I try to describe this through the eyes of people who saw him, myself and others who saw him during that time. And it's hard to do that because here is a proud person. He's a Supreme Court justice. However, it's, it's my view that it has to be shown. It has to be told because how else are we going to recognize how terrible it is unless we face it very squarely. For, for viewers of television during the hearings who only saw this, this very composed and, and, and very forceful speaking person on television who seemed to be very much in control of himself and, and uh, you know, just willing his nomination forward, to see the behind-the-scenes, the, 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 the propping up that was necessary, the, the ordeal that he went through, you've really added a, a third dimension to our, to our understanding of this. Well, thank you. This book is is designed to be different from the other Clarence Thomas books. This is not a whodunit. It's not an investigative book at all. It's not intended to dump on people or to point the finger at people, but rather it's intended to be in the nature of a war story, to show what it was like to live through that terrible 10-day battle to show what it was like to have the bombs falling around your head for 10 days. And uh, it was a very, very dramatic period of time, one that I think um, was a, a bad period of time for our country, and I hope we can learn from it. A bad time for the Senate Judiciary Committee? I think a bad time for everybody who was involved. I, I don't think that there were any real heroes in it except for the friends of Clarence Thomas who stood behind him in a very heroic way. But um, it really was terrible. Uh, it was a total breakdown of anything that uh, came close to being due process of law. It was like a, an alley fight with people throwing rocks at each other for 10 days. Oh, do you think his metaphor of electronic lynching was accurate? I think it was accurate, and it uh, it it was a very authentic statement by Clarence Thomas, first made in my office after Anita Hill testified. He was totally shocked, um, and he came to my office, and just the two of us were talking, and he said, uh, you know what this is, Jack? This is a lynching. This is a high-tech lynching. Now, here was a person who grew up in the in the middle of this century, in the Deep South, he was very aware of the stories that he had heard of lynching. He had read books about lynchings, and um, 
this is this was how it a- appeared to him that this was lynching but instead of somebody taking him out into the woods and stringing him up this was done on nat- national television it was done on prime time and therefore to him it was a high tech lynching is that to say that things would have been different if he were white i can't put myself in the minds of all of those groups that were opposed to Clarence Thomas. But certainly there was opposition because he was a black conservative. Because he was a black conservative. I think that's right. Um, And um, it's hard, again, for me to analyze exactly what was in the minds of his detractors, and I I, I don't even attempt to do that. But there was something about being both black and conservative that was totally intolerable in the eyes of the various groups that opposed him. But to keep it in context, many of those groups were also the ones who did in Robert Bork. That That is true, uh, except that the civil rights groups were very much involved in this, too. True. But uh, here's a picture. Now, we should also say that uh, I, I learned quite a bit from reading your book, even before Anita Hill stepped forward, there is a great deal of spin control and a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, pitching it just the way you want it, even if the hearings go smoothly. Yes, even before the Anita Hill story was known by any of us, this was a very tough confirmation fight. Clarence testified uh, for longer than any other Supreme Court nominee in history before the uh, Judiciary Committee, even before he came back for the Anita Hill phase of the hearings. Right from the beginning, from the first day after he was nominated by President Bush, various charges were made by people who were opposing the nomination. And it was clear right from the outset that the effort was to destroy him as a person, not just to oppose him because he was a conservative or because he had uh, unpopular political views, but to attack him as a person. And it was a very, very personal thing right from the beginning. After this short break, John Danforth reveals the startling admission another Supreme Court justice made to him in private. Now back to my 1994 conversation with Senator John Danforth. Is this a story that, as it evolves, eventually becomes a story about you as well as Clarence Thomas? Yes, it's, uh, of course, primarily a a story about Clarence Thomas. And uh, right after the confirmation, I spent a good amount of time with him uh, and with the tape recorder getting his memories in as much detail as I could, and that's a good part of the book, to recount in his own words what it was to live through this. I talked to his wife, I talked to his friends, and I talked into that tape recorder myself. And it's a kind of a composite story from all of us who were on his side of this, of the experience of living through those 10 days. And you do acknowledge mistakes were made. They certainly were made by me. And uh, I I try to own up to them. I have to say I'm not exactly wringing my hands about it all, but this was a, a situation without any sense of due process. It was uh, very much of a of a battle in the back alley. And uh, when it was in the back alley, I picked up the rocks with everybody else and began throwing them. But it's a shame that anybody's reputation, including Anita Hills, had to be dragged through the mud for this. 
That's right. And I think that that's one of the lessons of this, that these are real human beings who are involved. These aren't just uh, position papers or philosophical tracts. These are human beings with all of the feelings that people have. And whether you agree with somebody or not, whether you think that a person is just totally off the wall as far as political philosophy is concerned, still, this is a person. And a person should be treated as part of humanity and not dehumanized. And that's why we have our system of legal protections, because we recognize that as a country, as a, as a system, that we are going to treat people, even the accused, even people we believe have committed crimes, we're going to treat them as human beings deserving of protection. But in this case, there was no protection. He was simply hailed up before national television, and that was it. I do have to say, were I ever to be a Supreme Court nominee, which being unlikely since I'm not a jurist, uh, I would have to read this book and really, really seriously consider if the president asked me if I wanted to serve, I'm not sure that I'd want to go through this. Well, in fact, during this whole process, um, I, I did uh, run into a Supreme Court justice. And I asked this person um, whether, in the light of all of this, he would go through it again. And his answer was, no, it's not worth it. And uh, I would counsel anybody who was nominated for a, a high position in the government to be very, very careful. Because the people who are nominated are nominated because they've had good lives. They've been successful. They've been good people. They've been uh, proud of their past accomplishments. And all of that can be put in jeopardy. But the country still does have a legitimate interest in knowing that the people nominated to the highest offices in the land uh, who will pass on laws that will, will live on for generations long after they're gone are high, upstanding, moral, principled people. That's right. And I think we also have to understand that when um, an army of very combative people who are involved in political movements take it upon themselves to destroy a human being, they will succeed. And that people are very, very vulnerable. Human beings are vulnerable. Each of us is. And each of us can be attacked. And each of us can be personally humiliated. And each of us can be brought down. And as Clarence put it, each of us can be killed by this process. Not physically killed. The brain waves will still be emitted. But everything that makes life worth living can be stripped away from us. Still, I've talked to so many women since the hearing who say that it empowered them and their sisters in that now they can talk about sexual harassment at the workplace or wherever, that they're not alone, that it happens to other women as well. And boy, they sure believe that Anita Hill. Well, I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is, does anything justify the destruction of a human being? Does anything justify the taking from a person of what makes life worth living? Does anything justify a breakdown of any sense of due process of law? Is there a cause that does that? Is there a political movement that does that? And my answer to that question is that the answer has to be no. Uh, but that's the issue that's raised by this book. It, is this, now in its finished form, is this more or less the kind of book you had in mind when you set out to write it? I am pleased with the book, yeah. I, I've never written a book before, 
But uh, Boy, this is your first. Yeah, but this is um, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, I, I wanted to recount as clearly as I could and as uh, honestly as I could what that ten day period of time was like, what we did, what we saw, what we felt, what we thought, and to do so in a in a very clear. And hopefully uh, dispassionate and I think honest, I'm sure honest way of presenting it. Could Justice Thomas or you have gotten through this ordeal without your faith? No. Um, and, and Clarence Thomas recognizes this because he was, he had been destroyed. He, he had nothing left within him. And um, when I went to see him on Wednesday, two days before he testified, less than 48 hours before he testified, he was a wreck. He was just a human wreck. And in fact, even at 1 o'clock on the morning, 1 o'clock a.m., the morning of his testimony at 10 o'clock, he had nothing at all prepared to say to the committee. It was like the worst nightmares that people have about, that I guess all of us have about missing an exam. Um, he had done nothing. He had had nothing except, you know, a few notes that weren't any use to him. And uh, he literally opened up and, and asked that God supply the words. So uh, he, he recognizes that he had no strength in him and that it had to come from outside. John Danforth will be 87 next month. Clarence Thomas is now the oldest and longest serving of the current Supreme Court justices. And you can get a copy of Resurrection by John Danforth by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that, by the way, is where you'll also hear my 1990 interview with another controversial Supreme Court nominee, Robert Bork. The most mysterious branch to the American public is the judiciary, and yet it is one of the most important, particularly because when it speaks in the name of the Constitution, it is final, and that's it. And my 1993 interview with an attorney who argued and won one of the most significant cases of our time. She won the Roe v. Wade case in 1973, Sarah Weddington. There is no dignity when you must flee the laws of your own state, where doing the best you know for yourself and your future is deemed criminal. And I wanted to do everything I could to see that other women never went to that back alley. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you'll find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, what it's really like to be a stand-up comedian, or at least what it was like back in the 80s when this interview happened, my 1987 conversation with writer-producer Betsy Borns. Comics are the most fascinating, charismatic people in the world, probably barring the Pope. They can really manipulate your moods in a way that is really incredible. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.